Joe wants to know, why were you so soft in Vegas crying about the heat? Well, Joe... <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and this is our July Q&A show. So first and foremost, appreciate you being here. Appreciate you tuning in. Man, believe it or not, we are closing in on 400 episodes. Hard to believe. I've told this probably a thousand times now, but when I started, I thought if we made it to 50, maybe 100, I'd have said everything I needed to say, interviewed all the people that I wanted to interview, and man, show just keeps rolling. I continue to enjoy doing it, producing it, finding great podcast guests, finding great topics to talk about. So I hope you're enjoying the show as well. And personally, I love these Q&A shows because I feel like I've gotten some great questions in the recent months and years, and I feel like this month is no different. So we're not going to do any ad rolls, any of that stuff this week. We are just going to jump right in to the show. Uh, if you're listening to this, though, and you want to learn more about who I am, what I do. If you want free stuff, go to robertsontrainingsystems.com. Articles, videos, podcasts, just like this one. Sign up for our newsletter. You'll know each and every week when something new is dropping. So if you want free stuff, go to robertsontrainingsystems.com. You're a trainer, you're a coach. You want to level up your skills, go to completecoachcertification.com. It is basically the culmination of my 20 plus years of experience working in personal training, working in strength and conditioning, and the systems and processes that I've created during that time. So with that being said, let's jump into this show and let's answer some of these questions. So we're going to start with a question from my guy, Grant, or excuse me, Garson Grant. <laughs> uh, throws me off every time. Sorry, Garson. But Garson wants to know, how do you train professional athletes that come in one week and are gone the next? And First and foremost, a lot of us, when we get into the industry, aspire to train professional athletes. We think about how cool it would be. Obviously, if you're working with high-level people, the money is pretty darn good. But with all of uh, the money and the success and the things that they have going on, sometimes it can lead to a lack of consistency, right? They have a lot of money, so, hey, I'm going to go to Vegas for a weekend, or I'm going to train, and then I'm going to go and hang out in L.A. for a week or two. So, while it is good in the sense that they can afford to work with you and you can generally get a lot of time with them when they're in town, it's a very real issue in the sense that sometimes they're just not around for extended periods of time. So uh, first and foremost, I just want everybody to know this is not an ideal situation, right? I don't want to train somebody for a week and then have them go work out with somebody else for another week or two weeks. I like to have that time. I like to have that consistency because that's where you can really start to not only build the rapport, but that's where you can really start to string together some really solid training adaptations as well. You're not going to make it happen in two or three sessions. It's going to take weeks, months. In a best case scenario, you're going to have this person multiple off seasons for multiple years. So when I'm starting with somebody like this and I get a sense that, you know, they're not going to be here as consistency consistently as I'd like. One of the things that I always come back to is. If this was a perfect scenario, and if they were going to be here for an extended period, how would I train them? And I try not to deviate too much from that. So if I find somebody needs you know, to improve their pelvic position, or I determine they need to build better brakes, right? So they can be faster in and out of cuts, or they can jump a little bit higher. I am going to write my program based around their specific needs and goals. I don't care what anybody else is doing. 
You know, we'll talk about that here in a minute, but I'm going to focus on the things that I've determined to be their weaknesses. And we're going to start there. A second piece of this is educating the athlete. And this is a big part of it and helping them, you know, kind of understand like, look, I understand you have a lot of resources and you can go to Miami or Vegas or LA or Phoenix and do all these different things. But just know and understand that the more you're bouncing around, the more you're not with me, the more you're with somebody else that maybe has a differing opinion or a different training viewpoint, now we're running into interference and we're not going to get the best possible results. So I try and educate them on why what I'm doing will benefit them. And you know, if we have to, we'll circle back to their needs analysis, their assessment. Hey, these are the things that we found. These are the things that we determine are going to help you level up, get to maybe the next level, get another contract. So I have to really educate them on why what we're doing is important. Uh, and I also want to explain to them the difference between what I'm doing, which is you know setting in place a long-term training program versus unfortunately what a lot of these guys get, which are just workouts. And it's sad because this happens not only in the gym, in the weight room, but it happens on the court as well. A lot of times people are attracted to this idea of just getting work in. Oh, it's good work. It's good work. Well, man, I'm not a skills trainer, but I could do an hour's worth of YouTube research and figure out how to write a decent on-court workout. Now, that doesn't mean I can build off it. <laughs> it doesn't mean I would be anything more than a one-trick pony, but I could probably fake it for one session and make somebody feel like they worked hard, feel like they're tired at the end. But it's that long-term progression. It's that long-term succession plan that you're looking for to really help your clients and your athletes level up. So I try and explain to them, look, what I'm giving you is a long-term training program. It's built to help you build not just off this off-season, but in off-seasons to come versus just going in the gym and just training yourself really, really hard and walking out fatigued or gassed or however you want to say it. Hey, that's great, but that doesn't mean we're achieving a long-term uh, line of thinking there. It's not like we're going to get long-term results by just going in the gym and getting in work. So I want to try and have that discussion with them up front. And then in a perfect scenario, what I'll do is like, let's say somebody's going to spend two weeks with me, then they're maybe going to go to LA or they're going to go to Miami. I'm going to try and collaborate with their coach down there. I'm going to share what I'm doing. I'm going to say, hey, look, here's what I found in their needs analysis, in their assessment. These are the things that I've determined to be important. Now, they're probably not going to take it and run with it because that's just not how this always works. But I at least want to share with them my training program, my viewpoint, so that ultimately we can make the training program as seamless as possible, right? Maybe they don't like the exact exercises uh, that I choose, or maybe they have different gadgets or gizmos in their gym that they like to use. That's fine too. But as long as by and large, we're adhering to the same principles and we're following some of the same basic overarching viewpoints. Like if somebody's got to build their brakes, we're both training their brakes, then ultimately it's a better situation than if everybody is just doing their own thing. But if I'm being 100% honest here, the goal is always to keep them with me as long as possible. And if you look at the athletes that I have now, a lot of them have been with me four, five, six, seven years now. We're talking multiple off seasons. And what that allows me to do is really set up this long-term progression program because some of them, it might take your entire first off season just to get them healthy enough to train, make it through a competitive season and be healthy to where in that second off season, you can actually do what you want to do with them. So Garson, great question. I really hope that helps you out. Uh, it's definitely not an ideal situation, but I feel like by educating the athlete, by coordinating with other people 
they may be involved with, you can make it the best possible scenario given the constraints that you have. Very cool. Okay, second question. Man, when I was outlining this, I apologize. This could probably be an entire episode, but this question comes from Adam Hevron. And Adam wants to know, what are my thoughts on implementing HRV monitoring for large groups or teams of athletes? And man, again, Adam, this is a great question. And it's so good. <laughs> I'm actually going to spin this back around on you. And I'm going to give you three follow-up questions that I want you to think about. Number one, I want you to think about what do you want to get out of testing them, right? So if you're going to say, I believe in HRV, I think it's important. What do you want to get out of it? Are you testing readiness? Are you testing for aerobic adaptations? Are you testing for recovery? Lots of reasons. You could say, I want to test HRV. So I want you to think about what do you want to get out of it? Number two, I want you to think about what your testing cadence is, uh, or in other words, how often do you want to test this? And then the third question is, I, and this is something that really frustrates me because there's a lot of people out there collecting data and doing nothing with it. So the third question I want to spin back to you is, how will it impact your training process? So if somebody's been green for a month and they're red for a day, how is that going to impact what you do with them? And these are just things you need to think about because there are no shortage, there's no shortage of different monitoring tools or pieces of tech that we can implement. But if it's not going to move the needle with regards to adapting or evolving our training process, then why are we doing it, right? So I want you to think about these things. And while you're thinking about them, I'll give you a little story. Uh, when I first started working with the Indy 11 in 2014, I was so excited uh, and it was a bootstrap budget, right? I mean, <laughs> we didn't even have a proper training facility. We didn't have uh, proper like even equipment room or locker room. We were in pods while they were building all of this stuff. And so I went to Joel Jameson and I said, look, I really want to be able to implement HRV with the team. And he's like, yeah, perfect. I got you. And he sent me, I think it was like 30 some units, the HRV manuals. And I gave them to every one of the guys on the team, got them all set up. And look, we're not the Seattle Sounders, uh, let alone uh, a big team at that point in time. But I felt like, hey, this is this is pretty cool. I know there were no other NASL teams implementing this kind of tech at that point in time. And it was very interesting because it leads you to this issue of how you're perceived as a coach in the public versus the private sector. So when I'm with a team, the team doesn't get to choose whether they work with me or not. They're kind of stuck with me as their strength coach. So I have to win them over. I have to convince them to do stuff versus when I'm in more the private sector, you know, and I've got a Danny O'Rourke, a Chad Marshall, uh, a Lori Lindsay, they're coming in, they're paying me to work with me. So they want to do everything that I ask them to do. So this was really eye-opening for me because I assumed, hey, man, I've worked with, you know, all MLS players, national team players, uh, MLS best 11 players. I'm like, dude, these guys are going to love working with me. And unfortunately, that wasn't always the case. You know, when I started off, I think about 50% of the team immediately adopted using the HRV and they were doing it every day. So that's great, right? I can track all those players. I can see what they're doing. Um, you know, over time and as I got more rapport with the team, as I build better relationships, I think we got it to like 75, 80%, which I don't know what it looks like 
across the board. Like if you're working in the NBA or NFL, somewhere where you could track these players on a daily basis, I felt like 75, 80% adherence was pretty damn good. Uh, but then you have the other end, you know, you got the 15 to 20, they're just never using it. Uh, I had one guy in particular, he was kind of a pain <laughs> regardless. Uh, he literally tested his HRV one time in the entire season. Uh, <laughs> it was funny too, because it was my birthday. I don't think he knew that, but I just still remember that the one day he tested his HRV was on my birthday. But with that being said, right, I want to come back to your questions and I'm going to answer them and give you some thoughts. Uh, but again, these are things you need to work through personally and you need to answer before you start implementing any source of tech or readiness monitoring. Okay. Number one, we said, what do you want to get out of testing them? If it's HRV, great. Like whatever you choose, make it a priority, whether it's HRV, force plate testing, hand grip dynamometry. I don't care what you're using it for. If you have determined it's important to you, make it a priority. Stress the fact that this is a priority. Educate them on how this is important, how it's valuable. Most importantly, how it's going to help them play or perform at a higher level. You always have to come back to what's in it for them. Okay. Uh, and I think if you do that, and this is something that took me a little while to explain in a big group setting why this is important, once you can start to help them understand the value that it has to offer them as an athlete, then buy-in will improve. Okay. So regardless of why, it's on you to convince them that it's important and that it will benefit them. Second, what's your cadence? And this is something that I didn't really understand. I think Dave Tinney and I talked about it when he was with the Sounders. Eric Otter and I talked about it when he was with the Grizzlies. Your cadence is important and you have to be careful you don't burn people out. And let's say in basketball, people say, oh yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna readiness test my athletes every day, right? We're gonna make them jump on the force plates every day. Well, imagine you're an NBA player, you make, I don't know, 2 million, 5 million, 10 million, $40 million a year right? You've been in the league 10 years. Uh, now you're on the second day of a back-to-back. -back. You've been on the road for 10 days. And now you're jumping for the like 200th time this season. Is that really something that you want to do? Maybe yes, but in a lot of cases, no. So you have to be conscious of your cadence. Uh, and so in force plate testing, maybe they test once a week. Uh, with HRV testing, maybe you want to test every day. That's the ideal. That's the perfect scenario. But Again, you risk burning them out and you risk decreasing compliance. So in this case, maybe you just want to test them uh, a day or two after game days. So you have to figure out what your cadence is and you have to find that balance between getting the information that you need without burning the athlete out. And I think that's really important. And then the third piece, you got to figure out how is this going to impact training? If somebody shows up red every single day for a week straight. What are you going to do? Are you going to talk to the coach? Are you going to talk to the athlete? Are you going to dial back their training in the in the gym? Are you going to dial back their training in the session? Are you going to pull them out of the session? Like these are all things that you need to start to think through because you got to have a game plan. And I think too often people are collecting data and it's like this, you know, everybody's trying to like keep up with the Joneses. And I've got these 10 tools I'm using to monitor and track my athletes and they're using none of it to actually adapt their training programs. And I think that's a huge mistake. So, you know, one of the best things for me when we were using HRV was when we did have guys that were consistently red, 
for two or three sessions in a row. And what it allowed me to do was go and forge a little bit stronger relationship with this athlete, never in a group setting. But I remember two guys in particular, one guy, I came up to him and I said, Hey dude, you know, I've noticed you've been red like three or four days in a row. He wasn't playing a lot. So I'm like, what's going on, man? Is there something outside of the game that's bothering you? And he's like, look, um, I kind of know, like I'm a one and done. He was uh, literally a rookie and he knew that was going to be his one year playing pro soccer. He was like pretty good, but wasn't really, uh, cut out for it. And look, he had better things going on in his life. He, at this point in time, he was applying to dental school and he's like, it's a super stressful process. I'm worried if I'm going to get in. So there's just a lot on my plate right now. So that conversation allowed me to dive deeper into this guy's life and better understand him. A second guy was in a similar situation. He was a rookie, but he was playing more. Um, he was starting to grow in his role and getting more minutes. So I said, Hey, you know, what's going on, man? I just noticed you've been red for a couple of days now. And he's like, look, yeah, the soccer is intense and, you know, recovering and getting used to this level of play. But he's like, the more important thing is my dog is super sick and I love this dog and I want this dog to pass away. So what tech in a lot of these cases does is it allows us to have uh, those moments, right? Those rapport building moments, those character building moments to really try and figure out, OK, what's going on with this athlete and how can I best support and serve them? And so in both those cases, you know, I didn't go to the coach and say, hey, they've got personal stuff going on. I just say, hey, look, both of these guys have been red for a couple of days now. I think maybe we need to just be conscious of their training load and practice for a day or two. And then I think they'll be fine. So, Adam, man, such a great question. And I really hope this was helpful for you. I think there's a lot of things you need to consider, um, but I'm all for implementing tech, readiness, monitoring and these sorts of things in your program. Just be really clear on why you're doing it the cadence that you want to use it, and then how it's ultimately going to help you make better training decisions as you continue to work with those athletes. Great stuff, man. Okay, number three, this question comes from Jean-Luc. Uh, my French is not very good. So Jean-Luc would like to know, what are some ways to make training programs fun for young athletes? And by young, he means pre-high school, uh, but still train the stuff that you want to do. And I think this is such a great topic, something we need to be talking more about. And I want to give a shout out to my guy, Ty Terrell. Ty worked at IFAST for five years. He is now with, I believe it's like the director, high performance director of the Washington Wizards. So very, very cool to see that guy's evolution. But when he came into IFAST, I knew he was the guy that we needed because he'd worked under Lee Taft. He'd run his own business and ultimately I knew we wanted to do more athletic development. I wanted to get kids faster. I wanted to get them stronger. I wanted to be really an athletic development haven for our middle and high school age kids that came into our gym. And I think it's really important to note that, you know, this age group pre-high school, they're not little adults. So you don't want them in the weight room just banging weights. And along those same lines, they're not even high schoolers yet. You know, when we're talking 11, 12, 13 years old, these kids are developing. They're, in a lot of cases, going through puberty. Uh, you know, they're kind of stiff and immobile, right? Because they're growing very fast. They're uncoordinated. So there's a lot of things going on here. So I think the first thing you have to note is these are not little adults and they're not even high schoolers. So we can't train them like that. So when we started these programs, and again, shout out to Ty because he really set the, this in motion he really tried to put a big emphasis on, you know, if we're looking at R7, R3, 
the uh, readiness piece, like a long extended dynamic warmup. And there's a lot of just movement based skill in there. You could see where Lee Taft had influenced him, right? Cause they're going to accelerate, they're going to backpedal, they're going to shuffle, they're going to karaoke, all these different movement patterns and strategies that they need to be a successful athlete. So huge emphasis on R3 and then an even bigger emphasis on R4, which is our reactive, our speed, our power, our explosiveness piece. And so he would do so much stuff there. We talk, you know, we're talking uh, accelerations, change of directions, um, jumps, cuts, all of the things that, again, they need to be successful with regards to speed development to play at a higher level in sport. Because one of the things that I've always joked around with, I don't think I've ever had an adult like a parent call my gym and say, Hey man, little Johnny, he's just too fast and too explosive. I need you to slow him down a little bit. Every parent and consult that I've had over the years has been, Hey, you know, little Johnny, he's, he's really smooth on a soccer ball or he's got a great jump shot, but he's just too slow. He can't get open or he can't defend. So speed development is such a big thing at this age. So huge emphasis on R3, that really extended long kind of drawn out warm up. R4, lots of speed, agility, quickness, uh, low-level plyometrics, starting to build that foundation. And then R4 at the end was very game-focused. So Ty, Eric after him. And then what we were doing in speed camps a lot too, we'd put a huge emphasis on games. Kids love to play games. So we would do all kinds of variations of tag. Uh, spike ball has been a big one in our gym over the years. Eric was big on wall ball. So you find ways that they can compete and they can compartmentalize and take these skills that they learned in a little bit more uh, in a little bit more rehearsed or choreographed environment. And now you make them express them in a game or a competitive environment. And again, whether we're talking about Lee, Ty, Eric, they've all done such a good job of finding ways to help kids compete and take those skills that they developed earlier on in the session and then integrate them into a game competitive format. So if you look at the session, maybe 40 to 45 minutes of it revolves around getting warmed up, lots of speed and agility work, some sort of game. And then the last 15 to 20 minutes, that's where we're gonna go into the weight room and we're gonna start building those foundational movement patterns. So we're gonna teach them to squat. We're gonna teach them to lunge. We're gonna teach them to hinge. We're gonna teach them to do a push up maybe to, to own a pull-up type position at the top. Foundational movement strategies that they're going to need throughout their entire life, right? Because the goal isn't to just make them a great athlete from 11 to 13. You want to be able to build on that when they go to high school. When they go into a weight room, you want them to be able to squat, hinge, press, pull, lunge effectively. Because we know in those environments, there's a whole lot of kids, not a lot of supervision, so if I give those kids the tools early on, when they go into a high school weight room, they're confident in their abilities and they can go in and they can get the most out of those programs. But even longer term, when somebody retires from sport, they're always gonna take these skills that we've given them early on in their career and they're gonna be able to use that for the rest of their life. So we wanna build those foundational movements. And a lot of times people think, oh man, you're in there and let's like heavy back squats and trap bar deadlifts. No, we're talking like, lowest hanging fruit. It may be a plate reaching squat. It may be a kettlebell deadlift. It may be a supported split squat. It could be an incline push-up. But we're building all those foundational movements at a very young age 
so that again, when they get into high school, when they get into college, they have this really strong foundation that they can build from and that ultimately they can achieve whatever their highest level of athletic success might be. So man, really long-winded answer there, Jean-Luc. I hope it helped. Um, I think the, the systems and the programs that we've run over the years at IFAST have been incredibly successful. And it's really fun because if you can set the stage at this early age and give them some of these movement foundations, you can really see some awesome progress over the next six, seven years of their athletic career. Okay, next up, we've got a question from my guy, Jason Wells. Jason is an OG IFAster, so I love seeing this question from him. And Jason is a strong, strong dude. It takes me back to my powerlifting days. But Jason wants to know, what are your go-to favorite exercises to help shoulder rotation on squats? So, man, this is such a great question because how many athletes, specifically powerlifters, do you see that have mobility issues and struggle over the course of their career to maybe get under a bar? And, man, I'm just thinking back to when I first got started in powerlifting. You know, I'm like 22, 23 years old, reading everything that Dave Tate and Louis Simmons have to offer. And, you know, again, I'm like a buck 75, buck 80 at the time. So I just go under a bar and start squatting, right? First time I go to Westside and I see these guys and it's taking them 15 to 20 minutes and they're doing all these things. And, you know, they got the icy hot on the shoulders and they're doing everything and like prying themselves. It takes 20 minutes to get under a bar. I'm like, dude, what is going on here? But what you start to understand, especially if you follow like Bill Hartman's model and you start to understand like internal and external rotation and how compression can take away shoulder rotation, you start to realize, oh man, all the bench pressing, all the rowing, they've got that compression sandwich going on. And now they don't have IRs, they don't have ERs. So yeah, it's really hard to get underneath a squat bar in a back squat position, especially a low bar back squat position because they've got so much compression, they don't have that shoulder rotation anymore. So if you're unfamiliar with this model, I'm gonna give you a very brief breakdown really quick. Okay, so imagine you do a bunch of bench presses, right? And over time, those pecs start to shorten. Well, the front side of the body is reflective of your shoulder internal rotation. So if I compress and squeeze all of this, like I'm wearing a bench shirt, I start to lose my internal rotation. On the flip side of this, if I start doing a ton of rows, right? Cause we know big stable upper back is great for a bench press. It's a great shelf for a, a barbell back squat, but I do enough of those. I compress everything on the backside. Now I lose my shoulder ER as well. So over time, this compression sandwich begins to occur. I lose my shoulder rotation. Now I can't get under a squat bar. So how do we undo that? That's the real question here. And so my first goal, if somebody has lost this, is to recapture that IR and that ER. It's trying to create that space front to back through their thorax so they can get underneath a, a, a squat bar a little bit more safely and a little bit more effectively. So I've got three to four exercises. And again, Jason, I apologize because this isn't the best format to do it. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain some of these activities here, and then I'm going to drop specific YouTube videos in the show notes so you can watch these in real time and you can kind of see how they're coached and cued. So one of my favorite activities uh, is actually a Bill Hartman activity. It's called the seated dorsal rostral expansion. Now, not everybody thinks like Bill. <laughs> not everybody uses Bill's terminology. So I just think of this as upper back 
expansion. And essentially what you're gonna do, you're gonna take one of those really thin bands. A lot of times people use them around their knees to push their knees out. Put it around your elbows. You're gonna sit down. You're gonna drive your elbows through, you know, here I'm on a desk, a bench, whatever you have access to. But you got the band pulling you apart, so you, or pulling you in, so you have to keep your elbows apart. You're gonna drive those uh, elbows down. And then you're gonna take a breath in. You're gonna try and expand that upper back, all right? So do a couple sets of that. I love that one. That one will make a huge impact because again, if you can open up the upper back, your upper back is reflective of your external rotation. You open up your external rotation, it's easier to get underneath the bar. So I love that. I love actually dumbbell pec flies um, and not in the traditional sense where you got heavy weights and you're just trying to crush your pecs even more. Uh, but what I like to do is use this in an isometric sense. Uh, Christian Thibodeau talked about this years ago. He talked about like quasi uh, or eccentric quasi isometrics or EQIs. I just think of this as, you know, putting myself in a pec fly position and I'm going to hold for an extended period of time and I'm going to try and breathe and I'm going to try and breathe into my chest walls. I'm trying to fill this space back up. And what you hope over time is that you start to allow those pecs to eccentrically orient a little bit. You start to fill them up. So you start to recapture some internal rotation in that sense. Great for power lifters because we know a lot of times they have a tendency to strain their pecs as well. So just starting to open things back up and recapture that shoulder rotation tends to do wonders. And then last but not least, just band traction. And you think about how big and strong a lot of power lifters are. I don't know what you're pushing uh, on your bench these days, Jason, but I remember it was pretty decent weight. When you have that much compression on both sides of the shoulder, you need a, a heavy weight to help you re-expand it. So if you imagine somebody that can bench press 500 pounds and then you get the thinnest little band and you try and do band traction with them, they're not going to get anything out of it, right? The band has to kind of be equivalent to the amount of stiffness and compression they have going on. So you got to get a really big band right? The bigger your bench is, the bigger your band is going to need to be. And then you're going to attach that to a rack or something of that nature. And then just try and step back and re really try and get those big inhales, right? You're trying to expand that area front to back. You're trying to reclaim some space so that ultimately you can get under that bar a little bit more effectively. So those are some of the things that I would do just in my warm up or pre and post session to try and recapture some motion and get under the bar a little bit easier. Now, let's say you're a little bit further down the line and you just know, oh, okay, I did that and it helped a little bit, but I'm still not there. You might need to make more training modifications. So I kind of made a list here of things that I think will help. Firstly, you might have to switch up some of your upper body activities. So things that I really enjoy. And I actually just dropped a YouTube video about this this week, but I call them athletic pressing variations. So instead of doing the standard bilateral bench press, where we've got a barbell, both arms are tethered together and they're pronated, maybe we switch to dumbbell variations. Uh, maybe instead of a dumbbell variation, it's an alternating variation, right? So one arm is going down while one is going up. So now you don't have that unilateral just, or excuse me, that bilateral compression, just crushing everything on the front side. Now, you know, yeah, this side's going to get 
squished a little bit, but when you're doing that alternating action, it makes things a little bit easier and it can restore a little bit of rotation and a little bit of motion. So you could do unilateral asymmetrical options. Uh, you could do options where you're not in that pronated grip. So maybe you opt for a football bar or a Swiss bar where you've got a little bit more external rotation. That's going to take a little bit of the compression off the front side. And please, I've talked about this for at least 16, 17, 18 years now, incorporate some push-ups into your workout, right? Push-ups allow the, the shoulders to move, the scaps to move, just a great upper body activity. And a lot of power lifters are shocked at how hard really good push-ups are if they haven't done them in a while. So may need to make some upper body training modifications, lower body, maybe the barbell back squat needs to come out at least for a little bit. So some options you can use there. Maybe if you've got the mobility, you can do front squats. You don't have the mobility, you could use uh, the little straps. Uh, you could spin a safety bar around. There's a lot of options there, but opting for front squats versus back squats for a while. You could use a safety bar. You could use the spider bar, both of which put your hands in front of you. You could use a zerker position. So you may have to play around with your squat uh, as well and just find some options that are less restrictive on the shoulders. But I hope this helps you out a little bit because regardless of whether you need like the short-term fix, you just need to change some things in your warm-up, or you need to make some more serious modifications to your training program. I've given you a lot of options here and I hope, you know, whether it's the first one or a bigger picture fix, I hope it helps you out a little bit. So great question, Jason. I hope it helps. Now, with that being said, I do have some lightning round questions because I don't want to take too long. You know, I love these shows, but at the same time, I don't want to ramble. I don't want to get on your nerves. So let's dive in. Let's do a quick lightning round and then we'll shut her down for the day. So this first one comes from Sam. Sam is in the Complete Coach Cert training group. And he says, hey, Mike, hope you're having a great day. I am, Sam. Thank you. His question is, depending on the client, is one hour to an hour and 15 minutes a good time frame for the R7 system when training? So basically, if you check every box in R7, right, R1 to R7 in a training session is an hour to an hour and 15 about right. I would say absolutely. Um, there are times in, say, a boot camp session where you can maybe get it done in 45 minutes. But yeah, I would say most of my sessions are going to be an hour to an hour and 15 minutes. And Honestly, the times when it tends to get drawn out the most are with athletes. And so I tell a lot of my athletes, generally your sessions are going to be 60 to 75 minutes because they're going to have a longer or potentially more extensive R4 session. Uh, if they're in like, say, a strength or a power phase in R5, they need more rest. So yeah, you know, 30 seconds to a minute may go faster, but I may need them to take more rest because they're really taxing in to the nervous system. They're working very hard and that nervous system takes time to recover. So if they're doing a lot of R4 work, if they're doing a lot of strength and power development in R5, and then let's say we're doing some conditioning with them in R6, that session's probably gonna take 75 minutes. So I just try and let them know. I don't bill on the hour, I bill by the session. Um, and I just tell them a session could be as short as 45 minutes. If it's somebody that's young, developing, maybe it's like first week of a session where we're only doing two sets of everything, they kind of crank through it, maybe as short as 45 minutes. But if it's a higher level athlete and we're checking every box R1 to R7 in that workout, it's probably going to take closer to an hour and 15 minutes. So great question, Sam. Hope it helps. Number two, Joseph Cha. Joseph wants to know, what is your take on direct neck 
training. I almost threw that up. In fact, I said next training, direct neck training. So this area of the body, um, I think it's critically important for specific athletes. Basketball, I'm not super worried about, but if you're working in a collision sport, so if you're in football, you're in rugby, uh, I've got a race car driver uh, that comes into my gym, race car driving, even soccer, right? Because they do so many headers and they're up and their head and their neck are exposed. If you're in a collision sport, I think it is non-negotiable. You have to have some direct neck training in their programs. Number three, Joe Kin. Oh, Joe. Joe wants to know, why were you so soft in Vegas crying about the heat? Well, Joe, bro, I don't, I don't tolerate heat well, man. I'm like Scottish, Irish. I always joke around. Indiana is already too close to the equator. And Vegas, man, it's that dry heat, dude. I'm just melting every time I step outside. So um, sorry, bro. I'm not on your level. House, I'll try and get there. And I will try and be less soft the next time I go to Vegas. Uh, Callan would like to know, what are the pros and cons of training with sandbags and do you use them? Uh, I think the biggest pro of training with sandbags is just the nonconformity uh, and just the, the novelty of it, right? So, you know, a dumbbell is very compact. It feels a certain way. Sandbag, not quite as conforming depending on the bag that you have. It might bend. It might uh, you know, wilt, wilt isn't the right word, but it's going to bend a little bit when you pick it up or it might shift and move. So, you know, you're going to get some like accessory core stabilization or just like total body stabilization when you pick it up. Um, so is it a valuable tool? Sure. Um, the cons are you have to buy a, a totally unique training implement that, you know, not everybody's going to like, not everybody's going to use. So if you're a baller on a budget and you're just starting a gym, I don't know if it's something that I would invest in. Um, and then as far as do I use them? I have in the past. Uh, a lot of times I would use them for like circuits. Um, if I would do like little circuits at the end as finishers for fat loss clients, maybe we would do like sandbag shouldering, you know, six each. And then we do some Zerker squats and then we do like a, uh, RDL to row or like an overhead press, you know, we'd play around with it. We dabble with it, but it was never like a main thing in my program. So valuable tool. If you have the money and you want a little bit of novelty, sure. Is it something that's going to make or break your facility? Probably not. Uh, just a general question. How was Vegas? Vegas was great. Um, I just feel like anytime I leave and get out of my little bubble, here at home, it puts me behind a little bit. So this week I've been playing catch up on billing, on everything I fast, all my communication, uh, all the people that wanna have like little meetings, calls, consults, that all got pushed back a week or two. So great uh, and just great to connect. You know, there's got just some great people out there. I, I love hanging out with the guys from the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, you know, lots of teams and friends in the NBA, but they're just some of my favorites because very similar mindset, very similar training methodology. And I feel like every time I hang out with different people, whether it was the Grizzlies, whether it was my time hanging out with Daniel Bove, um, my guy Cade, who works with George now and Harrison Barnes, like anytime I'm around high level people, it makes me think and it challenges me. It makes me want to get better. So, you know, even if I just go out there to, to kind of reconnect with people, see how they're doing and just get a better feel for like what's going on in that space and with those athletes, it makes me come back and want to get better. So I think it was a productive trip. Uh, as you know, I'm playing the long, long, long game. Uh, but I think some of the things that we have in place now for IFAST and for our basketball guys and girls going forward 
is truly going to be elite. So I'm excited to talk more about that in the months to come. Uh, how'd the basketball program go? Basketball program has been great. Uh, I was very, very, uh, not surprised, but very, very pleased with the response that I got, especially because a lot of coaches that I've worked with over the years purchased it. They're trying to figure out more about how I program for basketball. And ultimately, I just want more young basketball players to get sound strength and conditioning programming. Um, you know, too many of them are getting either treated like power lifters, you know, they're back squatting, bench pressing and deadlifting, you know, just trying to push up their max every single workout, not going to work, at least not for the long haul. So many of them are not focused on movement training and becoming more skilled movers on the court. Some are getting trained like football players. So it's power cleans and squats and bench presses. It's like, man, this is not football guys. This is not powerlifting. This is basketball and they needed to be trained in a certain kind of way. That doesn't mean those strength developing tools can't be implemented in their programs, but sometimes just the way basketball bodies are made, the traditional barbell variations aren't always the best option for them. So very pleased with the response. Uh, I'm interested to see what I'm going to do with this down the line, because number one, I really undercharge. Like if you didn't buy this now, the next time it's going to be like three times the rate because there's a lot of depth in there. Uh, there's videos for everything. There is breakdowns as to why I'm choosing the activities and how I'm going to build on them. So there's just a lot of insight into the program that I think is going to help whether you're a young player or a young coach. It's really going to help you better understand how to write good training programs. So I thought it did really well. I was excited about it and ultimately very happy with the response that I got to it. So, man, my friend, that does it for this week's episode. Truly appreciate you being here. I hope you got something out of it. If you did, do me one small favor. If you're not already subscribed to the show, do that right now. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, the Amazon Store, YouTube, Podcasts. We are out there everywhere. So wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now. Hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. Second, if you already subscribed, thank you. I appreciate that. Go one step further and just share either this episode or maybe one of your favorite episodes with a friend, fellow athlete, a colleague, a coach, a trainer, a rehab professional, somebody that would benefit from a show and that might bring them into my ecosystem because, man, I'm always trying to make this show better, my videos better. I'm just trying to level up this entire industry. So anybody that you can help bring into the ecosystem and just share a little bit of that MR love with, I would truly appreciate it. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.